0: here with just a quick chat to let you know that the Scissors Within and Tight White Ball Hugger episodes won't be up for a few weeks or so. Uh, Life's gotten in the way a bit and I know that sounds stupid. I do a voves podcast so (laughs) I have no life, right? (laughs) Boomtish. But look, in the meantime, not to shortchange you, um, I'm going to share with you now the entire interview I did with Dave O'Neill, which was great fun, and it seems you know seems like it's too good to go to waste. He's always a great raconteur, is Dave, and uh, also a little bit funny when we consider the uh, the the Melbourne industry, music industry in the late '80s, because yeah, Captain Coco, of course uh the band he was in during the mid 80s you know they earned a, a mention on the sleeve of this murders past and the band gave the boys a few supporting slots so sort of relevant a bit <laughs> and anyway if you're still not satisfied in a few weeks in a week or so i'll also upload an episode an interview i did with Ross Wilson who was a member of a group also called the foves <laughs> for a few weeks anyway, back in late 64, 65. So yeah, many thanks, Ross. Uh, I could have talked to you for hours. And hopefully it was a little bit refreshing not to talk about Daddy Cool and, and Mondo Rock, but really, you know, focus on those earlier teenage years when you were starting out as a fresh-faced, eager musician. And it's quite fitting, of course, was because we're still looking at the or relevant... Uh, Comparatively the early days of our band Our Foves, That came around 20 odd years later So thanks Ross for that interview Well not strictly about the Foves. Hopefully there's something Fairly interesting nonetheless for you to listen to uh, So if they're for you Have a listen Otherwise We'll see you in a few weeks This is an, a good opportunity to ask Please you know, If you've got any audio clips You have You want to share your have your uh, contributions, your testimonials about the Fove, please email them in contact at fovespodcast dot com. We're in the year nineteen ninety two still, so go ahead, tell us why Invisible Spider Man is a is a banger or. Maybe you even remember the Hell's Home remedy clip because nobody seems to have a copy, and it would be fascinating to um, to hear from anyone out there who's seen it. Or could you upload it to YouTube, please? Or maybe you recall Fove's gig at the Punters Club really early on, or even the club. We'd love to hear from you. But uh, there you go. So that's it. I'll get out of the way. Here's a man who swears that everything tastes better crumbed. Dave O'Neill. Recorded back in February 2022. Fuck, that's almost two years ago. Kick on, here's Dave O'Neill. Now today we are very lucky to be joined by a very special guest. Someone who performed alongside the band in their first or second year. Probably hasn't thought about them since.
1: Stand-up comedian, one-time member of Captain Coco. Yeah, you heard that name right, Dave O'Neill. That's right, yeah. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. And uh, always love the Foes and under- underrated they were. They are underrated for sure, yeah. Like your band, Captain Coco? Nah, we weren't underrated. We weren't that good. But uh, <laughs> Look, people can, des- people can decide for themselves because my brother, who is a singer put all the songs on um, uh, Spotify and Apple Music and stuff, so I can just get oh, them good. on my phone. And I listen back to them, and some are okay and some are terrible. So, yeah, you decide for yourself if you want to ever listen.
0: Well, um, let's start off the beginning with the band, uh, the name. You came up with it, you put it to a democratic vote. How did you come across? Captain
1: Coco, yeah, yeah, look. Um, we're really influenced by bands like Haircut 100, Orange Juice, Altered Images... All the British. Madness. Yeah, love Madness. Specials. We had a bit of a scarf. We had a brass section, so we had a scarf feel. But we weren't really a, we weren't a scarf band. Um, and so we called ourselves Captain Coco. A little bit controversial because the guitarist at the time was Malaysian. And oh. he used to wear a captain hat. <laughs> so it was like, is he Captain Coco? No, no, it's, no, it's not nothing to do with Terrence. So um, these days, I mean, this was a long time ago. This was like nine eighty. Oh, three maybe, so it was a long time ago, yeah
0: Did uh, Brass come in at the start or that was later in your your career? No, no, you-
1: we just started off, we, we we just rehearsed in the scout hall and the school hall and there was just the classic I played keyboards initially bass, keyboards, guitar, drums singer, yeah and another guitarist, yeah, yeah, so and then Brass was added for sure, and percussion which was just really not needed You didn't really need a percussionist, but Haircut 100 had a percussionist. A few bands had percussionists back then, so we decided to have one, yeah.
0: Now, you started off, I guess, with covers, uh, Madness, Orange Juice, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also some Aussie, like, metal as anything. Uh, The Nips are getting bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, Police. Ones that were easier to play. Police songs were kind of easy to play. But we cl- quickly moved to originals because, we, you know, we we judge people in cover bands and uh, we didn't like them. So, because we were going to see bands like, you know, who, who, you know, the Sunny Boys or Midnight Oil or the Gurus, the Hoodoo Gurus. Did they dad? come to Melbourne? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I saw their first gig in Melbourne. They were fantastic. Um, they, they didn't have a they didn't have a bass player. They had th- three two guitarists instead initially when they were the Le Hoodoo Gurus and. Um, and so, you know, we loved those bands. We didn't want to be, you know, a cover band. Nah, that was nah, That was beneath us, we believed. <laughs> you said you you sang as well, but Glenn was yeah. the main singer? That's my brother. That no- my twin brother was the main singer. And yeah, there was no argument. I, I was happy to play. I soon moved on the bass after Andrew Hepburn, a bass player, left. So I moved on the bass, which was a good move because it's an easy instrument to play because there's only four strings. And... No, Glenn was always v- vainer and better looking and skinnier than me, so he was the lead singer. There's no doubt. Yeah. Do you remember your first paid gig? Yeah, we played we played at a La Trobe Uni Overseas Students function and we got paid for that because Glenn went to La Trobe and, I mean, you know, overseas students, I mean, that, you know, I don't know if they digged our vibe, but anyway, they got up and danced. By then we had a saxophone player, actually. A sax player had joined the group. Yeah, so we got a brass section pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was our first pay gigler trope. But we did a lot of gigs in scout halls and guide halls because we were all scouts. That's how, that's the how the it sounds ridiculous, but that's how the band met. We met in scouts, and so because um, there's older scouts, there's venturers, and so it was a mixture of guys from uh, Mitcham High and uh, Whitefriars, the Catholic school down the road, and a bit of Croydon High. So yeah, yeah. So um, so once word got around that there was a band willing to pay, play for free or very little money, we got work in guide halls and stuff playing for girl guides. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what about Sea Scouts? Were they a different breed? Did oh,
1: they- yeah, no, nah, they're different. They're like, there was also Air Scouts <laughs> too. But um, sea Scouts, oh, wow. sea Scouts, you'd see them at Jamborees and stuff in their blue uniforms, and it was always a bit, wow, that's pretty exotic. Look at those guys. But no, were, no. No, they, they, were, they were a bit exotic to see scouts, yeah. All
0: right, so you're doing scout halls, maybe weddings, parties, anything, bar mitzvahs and stuff. When, what about the pub circuit? When did you to just pound the pavement, hand out your demo, ring up pubs and say, can I get on?
1: Really, it was really hard to get into the pub. We entered a Battle of the Bands competition and, and the winning prize was you got to play the CV so, oh wow, which was great. So we got to play there and once we played there, we just started to hawk our stuff around. And because we were there were seven of us and we were all really young, like 18, 19, we had a big following just amongst our mates. So we would mm. get a good crowd. So the word got around, oh, these guys will come and bring 50 people. Oh, great, we'll get them as a support band. So we started getting gigs uh, around town at, like, the CV Ballroom. Uh, we played the Prince of Wales, the Punters Club. We played there a lot, uh, the Evelyn uh the Baden Powell Hotel which was called the Cub Club the club in Smith Street Collingwood and the Venetian Room in the city which was a great venue where I saw the Hooded Guru so that was in uh, Lonsdale Street uh, above, a, above I was
0: going to ask you that back then in the 80s were there any any venues actually in the CBD grid but yeah, yeah. You, you've just
1: mentioned one yeah. yeah and also oh well the Users Club which was in Carlton but on the edge of this right on the edge of the city but hang on the there Users was The Users Club The Users Club yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's th- it's still a nightclub it's still a nightclub um in uh, what street is that? I can't remember, but um, yeah, no, the Venetian Room was great. That was in, and there was also the oh, there was another one in the city too. But the city was pretty dead back then, you know what I mean? It was like you could always get a park out the front. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a lot, lot younger than you, Dave. I was born in '83. Wow. I started going to the c- I started going to the city in the late 90s. I still remember Batman Records on Swanson Street. Wow, yeah. But you're yeah. right, it was it was dead. There was no one there. There was no nah. international students. It was pretty dead. Ah, it
1: was dead. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: What about the Riverside Inn in Cremorne? Did you ever play there? It's sort of south of, uh, below the nylon sign, isn't it? Near the Punt Road?
1: Yes, we played there. Yeah, we played there. Yeah. That was called something else. That was called, they, yeah, we had a re- return gig there. And um, they knocked that down, though, didn't they? They knocked that down, or was it still there? Yeah, yeah it's a parking yeah. lot or something. Yeah. yeah, we absolutely played there. That was a nightclub pub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Richmond, well, it, interesting. Um, all the bands that we were involved with, we sort of stayed on the north side of Melbourne. So Fitzroy, Collingwood, the CBD, um, Richmond, and all the other more grungier uh, swamp rock because um, I found a poster of us at the CB Borum, and it's hilarious. There's Captain Coco playing with One Clear Day, who are kind of like a another pop kind of band. And then the, on the next night, uh, like uh, Nick Cave or someone like that, no, uh, the Wreckery, um, the Corpse Grinders, uh, Tex Perkins. And they were all those, they're all the, like the scientists, they're all swamp rock um, heavy kind of bands. But then there was this scene of like indie pop bands going on in um, in in Melbourne, yeah. Um, you you <clears throat> you've said before you're quite young.
0: I you know I doubt there were many dr- hard drinkers in your band. You're not that no, sort of a group. You're-
1: no, no, that's a good point because yeah, we weren't. There were no drugs. There was no uh, hard drinkers. Uh, we preferred a milkshake actually, which was <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. But you played, uh, you know, you played with these other bands, and they weren't hard drinkers. All, all the, all the, all the, all the druggies and stuff were in the other scene with all the swamp rockers. You know, who, uh, the Reckery, who we used to nickname the Smackery, because they were all on heroin. <laughs> and um, but yeah, there was a. Bit, I don't know if it was rivalry, but we used to mock them all the time on stage and stuff. And we put out press release saying Nick Cave was going to join us to sing you're the voice <laughs> we, we, we were absolute idiots and um and we used to mock people like that because also they were all from um, private schools and we were mainly, right you know mainly high schools and that's and that's one of the reasons why we love the foes because the first question you know when you're 17 and 18 the first question you ask is what school did you go to yeah <laughs> and it still we, hasn't changed in melbourne it <laughs> hasn't changed in melbourne no it's tragic and uh, we love the foes because they went to Mount Eliza High, whereas a lot of the bands down there went to Peninsula Grammar or whatever. But these boys yeah. were, were government school. So we immediately helped them because of that. <laughs> Tragic. It's the same when I'm. we used to occasionally play with Tism too. So oh, right. We play with them once or twice. But th- um, before we play with them, I remember going to Thrash Nightclub and the, the, the rumour went around those two guys over there. Uh, from Tism, mm. uh, they're the blokes from Tism, and because you know, there's a short one and a tall one in Tism. The, yes. the singers one there's a short one and a tall one. And because I was so such an idiot, I just went up and I said, Hey, rumor is you guys are in Tism. And the guy goes, Hey, you're in Captain Coco. I went, Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, He goes, do you guys all go to Scotch or Wesley? I went, Oh, get off it. We're from Mitcham High. <laughs> he's like, Oh, yeah, because you know, because we used to dress in Captain Coco like, um. Uh, a bit preppy kind of you know we you know with jumpers and like <laughs> everyone all sort of stuff. yeah exactly like paul yeah. weller yeah and so people assumed <laughs> we were wealthy kids because we we dressed the part but we weren't and then he goes um the tism guy goes oh we like you more now that you're from Mitcham high and um, cuz they are all from a shit Catholic school on spring, uh, right out on the freeway in Springvale. I think it's called. I can't remember what it's called. Mazenod, and so that, that we we're all from the outer, outer eastern suburbs, the same places where TISM came from.
0: Yeah, but, well, DC ended up teaching at Ringwood College. I think that was his his place yeah, for a decade yeah, or so. Yeah, yeah, teach. they both
1: taught in they both taught in uh, outer eastern uh, state schools. Yeah, interesting, but they were part of that sort of that scene towards the end of when we, you know. It broke up, yeah. Well, they must have been, they were in
0: a different place in the 80s to 90s. It would have been pretty raucous atism some gigs in the 80s. Did they just ask you,
1: did you use the same booking agent or did they ask you to support them? How did that come around? It was through a booking agent, I reckon. And then, and then, I mean, I can barely remember supporting them, Yeah. but I, I found the photo album of all our posters and we supported them like twice. So we must have, you know, we must have, um, but i can I remember talking and meeting the guys, and then I got to know one of them well because he he worked as a copywriter at triple m and um he left teaching to do that um Damien, and so I got to know him well, but yeah we definitely we definitely played with them because it was so long ago, yeah, it's hard to remember the details, <laughs> but did Captain Coco have a lot of dancing
0: or Veritate, yes. like in your performance, yes. like Tism, It would have gone well you.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we we did we did a bit of dancing and um, you know you know I look at bands now and we were a good party starter band because of the brass section and there were seven of us. So people would book us to go on at the end of a festival a bit. You know who are we were a bit like Cat Empire. So I look okay. At, I look at Cat Empire now and they've got a brass. They've got a, they're a bit scarish and I, I've never seen them live, but I would believe they would be excellent to come on at the end of a festival outdoors, you know, in the park, and get everyone going. Yeah. That's what we used we used to do a bit of that. We would get employed to go to Portland or Warrnambool and do some f- festival where no one really knew you. They didn't know your songs, but you'd come on with a brass section and everyone would start dancing. So, yeah, we, we we're, were a good-time band, good-time band, yeah. Did any band take you under their wing in the beginning? Not really, not really, but... um There were certainly bands that we work with a lot. Like There was this whole scene of indie pop kind of bands. There was the Fish John West Reject, who were from Tasmania, and they moved here. And they were great. They were like a poppy kind of band. And then there was the Killjoys, who still play. Again, they were more indie pop. You know, jangly guitar, a bit of jangly guitar, and also then some of the ska bands, like the Looney Tunes, who were a ska band, we used to play with them a bit because, again, they were from the Outer East, and we we met one of them on a train, which is so funny when you think about... It. He, he was sitting on the train, and I just went, hey, you're from Looney Tunes. He's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so we started talking to him, and so we got work supporting them. So there was a whole... Yeah, yeah was like, um, there was a whole scene in the Fitzroy Collingwood, Richmond uh, area uh, the Partners Club was big and we used to play there a lot and then I'm trying to think of the bands that any bands that most people would know that had success. Fronte was around and they were playing, um, and and they got success and then the Underground Lovers started. We used to play with a lot of yes. ba- we used to play with a lot of bands that had members who went on to form the Underground Lovers, like the MacGuffins who were a great pop indie pop band who'd sound a bit like prefab sprout and they Philippa from Played the keyboards in Underground Lovers. She played in that band, and then Glenn Benny played in another band that we played with. So I was asked to audition as the bass player in Underground Lovers, but um, really, yeah, I didn't turn <laughs> up though. I, I think I was a comedian. I think I was getting into comedy by that stage, but <laughs> could have been me. Could have been you. There's yeah. a Fove's connection, of course. Um, their
0: A&R guy signed them to Polydor. Craig Camber also signed Underground oh, Lovers.
1: Craig Camber. Craig Camber was a big. Uh, force around the time, and he this was. This is what I hear, yeah. Yeah, he was a big supporter of all that, and he. I saw him in the street maybe four years ago, and he was said he was putting together a CD of all those late '80s pop bands that people have forgotten about, the the Autolites, yeah, the Killjoys, us, and then also Ripe. The, our guitarist, our guitarist Mark Murphy, left and formed Ripe, and they went on to have some success uh, on Triple J and stuff with their Plastic Hassle album. Uh, they came out of that scene too, and so it's often forgotten. Uh, there was this great pop, uh, indie pop, you'd have to say, scene, and uh, also bands like the Sugar Gliders were around. And it was um. What about today's vegetables? You heard of them? Today's no, vegetables? No, no. Wild pumpkins at midnight. Oh, wild pumpkins at midnight! We definitely played with, absolutely, and they had a bit more. See, they some of them would uh, go into kind of a folky. Yeah, where they play fiddle and stuff, and there was a bit of that in Wild Wild Pumpkins at Midnight, but they were a great band, Wild Pumpkins at Midnight, absolutely. Well I went for a walk down Rupert Street and I saw Air from my friend. She started to talk of Graham Green. Well I just nodded my head.
0: And sh- and uh, going forward to your future career, did any of this scene sort of play in the flying trapeze or any sort of connection <laughs> with the
1: the early comedy, like, yeah. the comedy scene? Yeah, well, well what would happen occasionally at, at, at gigs, you'd have a comedian come on between the bands. So oh, we, yeah. Yeah, which was very... Unreal. Did so <laughs> it we, would we, go well? Oh, you had to be really good to do it. I didn't do it, but I saw comics come and do it with us. So we would go on, uh, there'd be a break, and then, like, Looney Tunes would go on and say, like, a, there was also a venue called the Aberdeen Hotel, which was a great venue in North Fitzroy, and it's apartment apartments now, of course, of course, and so, and these guys would come on, and there was a guy called Slim Whittle, who used to do a Midnight Oil roadie character, so he would come on, and he'd have a speaker on his shoulder, and he'd a black t-shirt with oils written on the back, and he'd just walk on stage, and he'd just look around, and he'd go, oh, we're not fucking playing this joint, fuck that, oils aren't playing here, and they do a whole routine, and people were like, is this guy real or what's going on? <laughs> you know, so there were there there were a bit of that kind of. It wasn't really straight stand up. It was more like a character or a musical com- comedy piece. What happened in between the bands and it, it was it was great. I looked at those guys and went, "Man, they are so brave!" Because there were seven of us on stage with instruments, you know. So, but definitely in between songs and stuff, I was the one who would talk into the mic and tell stories and make stupid jokes and stuff. And that's where I got my start. Yeah.
0: You're the coxie of, of uh, Captain Coke. Yes.
1: <laughs> All right. What do
0: you think the biggest show you ever did was?
1: The biggest gig? Uh, we, pl- we played the Metro with Boom Crash Opera. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. That was for Push. Remember Push Victoria, which is still around, which is a... Pushover, yeah. Push. Yeah, Pushover, yeah. Encouraging young people to get into music. And there was a whole... Oh, there was another band called The Wet Ones, which is a precursor to... They're an all-girl punk band. They were great. They're from Warrandyte, and they we used to play with them too. An all-girl punk band, but they're kind of punky, poppy. You know, they were more go-go's than Sex Pistols. And um, we played with them. Yeah, we supported Boom Crash Opera, which was a a big deal because Boom Crash Opera, some one of them went to our high school. The bass player went to Mitcham High, so we knew him. And um, but that's when you saw bands like that, and you went, oh they were so good you know what i mean like such a polished unit professional players very good lead singer and they all came from other bands boom crash opera they were from serious young insects government drums they got the lead singer from a cover band cuz had been in these independent bands for a long time and just went oh fuck this let's let's try and let's try and do what in excess have done and then that's what they did <laughs> interesting
0: Would you have performed at some venues that maybe were old school that still had strippers in them or sort of fisticuffs or violent bars in in Collingwood, those Fitzroy, you know? Or did you deliberately go to venues that were a bit more indie tolerant?
1: Yeah, we look, we we definitely... I mean, we're going to Broadmeadows and doing a gig in a pub there for the socialists, and that was very sketchy. We did did a bit of touring, like we went to One Thaggy, for people that don't know, that's down near Phillip Island in Gippsland, and that was yes, that my was, mum
0: was born there. Oh,
1: one thing. yeah, that was <laughs> her bit, mum was born there. Yep, in the eighties, that was a bit sketchy because also we we were city boys, and so they knew straight away by how we dressed. You get out of the car and people would have a crack at you about your haircut. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't doesn't really happen anymore, but in the eighties, you get out, and people would go. Oh, look at these fucking guys. And so that was a bit... Well, you were a cheery band, yeah? You were a smile, happy we dance hap- band. We yeah. were a happy... You know, we were a happy band. I'd, I'd I'd, been to bands where guys would start fights, especially in the scar, The scar movement. They, they, I was in a scar band as well called Yeah, Yeah. We were a scar cover band. And you attracted skinheads. And the skinheads, look, some of them weren't... Some of them were just normal people, but some of them were Nazis. And they would start fights. Often the bad, the bad skinheads will start fights with the good skinheads. <laughs> but no, we, we, look, there was a great scene of just indie venues, you know, that was set up to, just for bands like us. And, you know, like the club in Collingwood, they would have massive bands like the church, you know, an ice house and whatever play, and then they'd have us play on a Wednesday or something, or, or play upstairs or in a smaller room, so... They, they were great. Same same you know same as the CV ballroom. There were different sized rooms in the CV ballroom. There was a massive one upstairs where I remember seeing you know my brother would go and see the fall and um you know the birthday party and then and then downstairs you know I remember seeing the go betweens there. So
0: oh great they lived in Melbourne for a year didn't they? They lived yeah, in Northcote for a year or something. Yeah, yeah
1: they I mean they I saw them a lot. They were around a lot and they were a big. We loved the go betweens. Um, they're, they're a great band.
0: On your podcast, the debrief, everyone, please listen to it. You always say, "I'm trying
1: to remember when I first met you." Do you remember when you first met the Foves? Would have been a long time ago. Yeah, it would have been 1984, 85, and they came up to us at the Baden Pell Hotel, which is still there in Collingwood, and they asked for a gig, and they gave us a demo tape, which was quite common. Uh, because you know, you get people asking you for gigs, but you don't want a grunge band or a swamp rock band playing with you because it's it's just a different. You know, they had their own gigs, and um, and so we they had a bit of brass. One of them, one of them was Cox who used to play the trumpet. One of them played the trumpet. No, doctor plays the trumpet doctor. and the trombone. Yeah. yeah, and so we we and 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 I was talking to my brother Glenn about this, and we, they were they kind of got grungier and rockier as they moved in their career. But initially, they were kind of a bit art pop, like art, sort of art rock pop, talking heads kind of vibe. And so we really liked them. And because they went to a high school, we gave them their first gig at Thrash, supporting us. And then, um, and so Thrash was this, uh, it was then called the Bridge Club on Bridge Road. It was like it must have been a former shop that was gutted and turned into a small nightclub. But an alternative nightclub. So you'd go on a Saturday night and the guy would play a Cure song and all the goths would get up and dance. And then they play, they play a Smith song and all the shoegazer indie types would get up and dance, you know. So it, it wasn't like a... There was a whole lot of those sort of alternative nightclubs. And they would occasionally have bands on And So we played and we got the foes to support us. And then from that point on, they supported us quite a bit because I met, I found the book of Our accounts. Which I sent a photo to you of the Captain Coco yes. accounts, <laughs> and uh, you know we got paid like three hundred dollars, and we'd always give the foes fifty dollars to support us. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose back in those days, fifty bucks—that's enough petrol to get you to the gig. And um, but, yeah, oh,
0: well, a pack of cigarettes was like two bucks or less oh, back then. And
1: so. I just remember the foes b- being really friendly, and. Um, I remember Coxie was yeah he was a good frontman because he was quite unusual, and he was quite funny, and he you know he'd make comments and talk to the crowd and stuff, and um, so we we liked them immediately, and we got on well with them. I remember the bass player was in the navy, Jack. He was in the navy for a bit. Was
0: he? He's definitely done Sydney to Hobart boat races a few times. Yeah, He's a mariner, I think. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So he, I remember him telling me he was in the navy. I was like, wow. <laughs> so it was. Um, it was, a, but we never really went on tour with them or anything because we didn't do that much touring. We went to Adelaide once and Sydney once, but we were there were so many gigs in Melbourne. Like you know, on a Thursday night, there'd be seven gigs in Melbourne you could do. So wow. it was amazing.
0: You cringe just then when you thought of Adelaide. Oh, the yeah. foes have always begrudged, <laughs> like we just can't get traction there. The gigs, no one turns up to. Is that your experience too? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, we weren't f- famous at all, so we really. We played. We went and played with a Scar Band, supporting a Scar Band called Just Kidding, who were in Adelaide, and they were lovely guys. And so we just supported them. But we, you know, we didn't make any money. We stayed in a caravan park, and um, it was just good fun um, to go to Adelaide. But Sydney was the same. Sydney was hard. You know, you go and play some of those legendary venues like the Hopeton and the Annandale. And there was, again, there was a bit of a pop scene up there. You had a lot of indie sort of pop bands up there too. But, um, yeah, it was, we were most, yeah, we were a Melbourne band, basically, you know. We never got to the foes, because you know what happened? What, What happened in Melbourne was interesting, was that Triple J wasn't here in the mid to late 80s. It wasn't, it must have arrived late 80s or, um... And it certainly didn't make an impact till the till the nineties, maybe the late eighties, early nineties.
0: Triple R, all you had was Triple R, okay, and PBS, PBS and, and so. you know what,
1: and they were really supportive of bands like us and the Foes, and the Fish, John West Reject, and the Killjoy. So we would get our music played on Triple R by people like Steve White, who's still on Friday afternoons because he loved that kind of indie pop sound, and we would get played. I remember going in interviews with Bodan and stuff, and they were great. And so because of that. You got a bit of a following because uh, of the Triple R thing, but once Triple J started, it became very Sydney centric, and the foes were really lucky because they got airplay with um, "Dogs Are the Best People." They remember they got a bit of they got a bit of Triple J traction, the foes, which gave them a bit of. Whereas we put out a single, um, the last single Paul Weller" was formerly yours, formerly yours, yeah, which is <laughs> a great pop song, and we sent that to Triple J. And they I remember ringing up the guy who was a music programmer, he's still there. Richard Kingsmill. Is that his name? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and so back Legendary in the legend. back in the eighties, I would have rung him up in eighty eight or eighty nine. You could ring him just on the landline. And I said, Oh, hey man, we're you know, I'm from Captain Coca, we sent you a um a single He goes, Oh, I've listened to that. He goes, that's not gonna put that's not gonna go on Triple J. (laughs) 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 So this one tool decided your future on Triple J, you know, which was really, really hurtful. But of course he he was in Sydney, he didn't come and see us or any of the Melbourne bands, you know. But you know interesting about the foes is that as I said they started off more poppy but then they they kind of it, not not embraced the grunge thing but they kind of incorporated a bit of that grunge vibe yep. into the music yeah lot a bottom end on the guitar yeah, yeah yeah whereas we we couldn't do that and so we broke up <laughs> <laughs> cuz of course in, in, in about 88 89 Nirvana the Pixies the Pixies were big it, you know the Pixie the Pixies albums were huge amongst music fans and we would listen to that and go oh wow but we were so far removed from that world but the foves weren't you know what i mean they could easily slip into that world they're already halfway there so i I reckon the pixies would have influenced them a bit for sure
0: they talk about um early sonic youth they liked and uh even her first few EPs of Hunters and Collectors is a yeah,
1: bit, yeah yeah that's what they get compared to them and I mean the, I remember seeing Hunters and Collectors and they had a percussionist they had a bloke that would just bang a gas cylinder through the whole set and bang things so yeah they were Hunters and Collectors where did they sit where did they sit they were they were too indie to be swamp rock right like they were a bit but they yeah. were a bit too hard to be indie yeah yeah you're right they were like a you're right, but they had kind of their own scene, Hunters and Collectors. So they would just play... They would play all the venues, like the CV Ballroom. I remember the thing about uni, because uni gigs were big too. Melbourne Uni, RMIT, Latrobe, Monarch. They all had... Ba- we played at them all too. They all had bands, because, you know, John Howard got rid of the student unions. Thanks a lot. And so student uh, student life was great, because we had all these... They could go and do it. They could go and do the normal rooms, and then on Sunday do Melbourne Uni. There was a big room there. They do, and so the and collectors. Yeah, that's a really good question. But they kind of fitted in with that pub rock thing too. Eventually, you know what I mean. Would you, you
0: have been scared seeing them on the train? You know, if you saw Mark Seymour on the train, would you have been scared? Yeah,
1: yeah, he was a, fami- a formidable <laughs> little guy actually. Mm. <laughs> but we never played with them, and we never we never came across and collectors. They were in a different league to us, I would say.
0: Do you think Doctor, would it be possible Doctor may have played trumpet with your brass guys? Yes. Is that altogether yeah, possible? Yeah. yeah, he
1: may have, he, could, he could have got up and jammed easily. Doctor was is a great guy. And Doctor's also, he's done the sound for some of my comedy shows. He's like turned into a, he was doing sound. Don't you mean Ted, the bass player? Oh, was it Ted? Ted, Terry, yeah. Oh, God, I can't remember. You're right. I think it might have been Ted. <laughs> it was Ted. It was Ted who does sound. Yes, exactly. You're right. It was Ted. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I get it mixed up.
0: Did you record at the famous Richmond Recorders? Is that where yeah. you recorded Kite? He'll,
1: yeah. Uh, no, we recorded at Richmond Recorders where um, Lobby Lloyd owned it. And yeah. Did you meet him? Was he, he there? Yes, he came in. A big gruff like, what the fuck, you know. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and he, he, of course, produced one of my favourite records, The Sunny Boy's first album they record they recorded that there but what happened there was my brother trev <clears throat> he was a musician he was in bands he was in a band called the ups and downs remember the ups and downs um, no the name only oh okay they're a big uh, 90s they had a few hits they're a brisbane, they're a brisbane band but my brother joined for the last couple of albums i oh, look at they are fantastic they were a great indie rock like sort of in the like in sort of the world of the church and the whoa gurus strong guitars and my brother played keyboards and bass with them, and he so he produced a couple of again it's all on Apple or Spotify. He produced a couple of songs for a demo at Richmond Recorders, and then because of that demo, we got a recording contract with Cleopatra Records, and then we recorded at Sing Sing in Richmond. The album was recorded there, yeah. And Sing Sing was again another legendary. Uh, studio where you'd look on the walls and go, Oh wow, that those you know not any Waving did a lot of stuff there and um
0: Yep, the Foves recorded there, yeah, Lazy Highways,
1: the yeah. Of things. Yeah. Powderfinger, very, very big. Yeah, yeah. So it was um it was good, yeah. Where was
0: the Kite album launch? Do you remember that? Was it Okay, yeah, it was
1: at the club. The club in Collingwood. So it was called the Jump Club, the club. And we had a big album launch. Um the Foves didn't play there with us, but the Foves played then when we decided to break up, we did a final gig at the club and the Foves played at that last gig with us. Yeah. So, All right. Yeah. What year was that? Do you know? What year was that, 89 or It must have been 89 or 90 because I started comedy in 1990 and the band had definitely broken up by then. So it was either early... I think my brother said it was early 1990 when we did our final gig. But then stupidly, we did a reunion gig a year later. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> did you do stand-up during like sets or anything then? No. <laughs> I, I remember, though, when, you know, at early Ripe gigs and stuff, because I we were such good friends of those guys, I did stand-up in between Ripe and other bands, yeah. Ah. <laughs> like in people's backyards and stuff, at just parties and stuff. Right. I, I just get up and do stand-up, which is just horrific to think of now. But, um, oh, they're pretty, pretty good audiences. And the thing about that is that you're talking to people exactly the same age as you in the same world as you so you kind of I mean I go at at oh, I did a school at a uni recently and it's like, oh I'm like their dad now. I don't want to hear from dad. Like, you know.
0: What about the Builder's Arms? Do you ever do you ever perform no, there?
1: No, no. The Builder's Arms wasn't that was just a dodgy pub back then. But across the road, which is now a post office, was another venue, another pub, which used to have bands like The Bachelors from Prague and stuff playing there. So, there was a bit of a scene around that area, but the Bill's Arms w- was definitely a dodgy old man's pub. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Is that the one that's on the it's corner? on Gertrude Street. Oh. It's a gastropub now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, we didn't play there, but certainly we hung out there. Yeah, we hung out there because that's right. In that in sort of the 90s, it became alternative and they'd have an alternative nightclub in the back room. They'd have like a gay nightclub in the back room because I remember filming something there for a sk- comedy show I was doing, and um, that was a, again that was a great little nightclub. They they had bands there. You're right, yeah, but we never played there. I'm also thinking of the yeah the foes would have played there surely.
0: Yeah, they said they were treading that sort of shitty venue that wasn't really accommodating to music until they fell in with you. Right. and they fell in with the Booker of the Punters. Then they noticed they were yes. in the scene. Yeah,
1: the guy... Well, the Punters was great because they loved those kind of pop bands. And also, the the guy from Fronte was the barman, and he was a great guy. Um, the guitarist, the songwriter. Oh, what was his name? He, he was great. And so he kind of had a big influence, I reckon. So, oh, the Punters Club was the best. I mean, we saw so many bands there and stuff. It was the best. It's the greatest.
0: When did you know the you know the writing was on the wall for captain coco
1: well i think well listening back to the songs now <laughs> cuz i haven't listened to them for such a long time and i put them on in the car with my kids who were teenagers and my wife my, my, i've been with my partner so long that she saw captain coco she was at the reu- she was at the reunion gig it was 30 years ago and we just laugh our heads off at some of the songs because they're so juvenile and we sound like children we we honestly we sound like the wiggles or something in in the very early recordings (laughs) because we're like 17 and 18 and once we got into our 20s we kind of got better but as i said you'd go and support bands like boom crash opera or even tism and go oh man they're so much better than us and you know and and I think once Mark Murphy left the band um, and formed Ripe, he was one of the main songwriters. Um, yeah, it, it kind of just sort of yeah, kind of it had its time, you know. So, as I said, it was kind of we were kind of an '80s pop band with an independent streak in and with a brass section. But by t- by about '89, '90, the, I mean, there were still bands like the House Martins, you know, came out who were. The British Fat band Fatboy Slim Yeah, Fatboy Slim was a bass player <laughs> And they were a great They were similar to us They were a great pop, rock, indie guitar band With a sense of humour they, they were great And so they were kind of inspirational But we kind of just uh, called it a day You know, because, you know Being in a band It's just a lot of carrying equipment um,
0: Seven of you, man Yeah Splitting the checks
1: Yeah, splitting the <laughs> checks And so I really wanted to go into comedy My brother the singer teaching Oh, teaching, yeah. Well, I studied teaching. Yeah, hedging your bets. Yeah. That, that was a night. That's a nightmare. And um, my Glenn, my twin brother, ha- was in the Red Cross, and he was going on on some overseas assignments and stuff. And so mm-hmm. he he was going. We talked about forming another band after it, but um, no, nah, it all just fell apart. Yeah, <laughs> but it was good. I got I got it out of my system because I know a lot of comedians these days <laughs> they would be rock stars. You know what I mean? And they're always yeah. wanting to form a band and sing a song. I'm like. Oh man, I did that. You know, I've got my base. I've got my ba- I've got my base right here, and I, occasionally I use it in my comedy act. But um,
0: I've seen you at yeah the little Dum Dum Club in Maryborough. You b- you bought it out.
1: Oh, were you there? Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was great because I was so worried because I hadn't done it for so long, and because we talked about it on a, a previous show, I'm I'm going to Carl Chandler who's from Dum Club. Oh, I'm not very good bass because you know what the thing is if you've done comedy for 30 years you're good at comedy but if you played bass in the 80s for 5 years and you haven't played it for years you're not <laughs> that good but um, it went really well I was, I was thankful for that so, um, <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah I used to do a routine bass lines of the 80s famous bass lines of the 80s yeah yeah, and 70s criminals aren't meant to be nice.
0: When's the last time you saw the foes? Was it on the Mick Malloy show on the couch? In the, in the oh, 99? yeah,
1: probably. That's right. They played. <laughs> they played, didn't they, on the Mick Malloy show? Yeah, they did. Yep, they did. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, that would have been the last time I saw them because Mick, of course, is from the same area as the foes. He's he's, okay, he's yeah. from he's from uh, Mount Eliza as well. So he would have known. Mick's got a lot, a few brothers, and they would have hung out with Coxie and those guys.
0: It all comes down to cricket, I think, or football. That's how yes. they together, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's that's funny because yeah, Mick was very supportive of him, wasn't he? Like, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that was the last time I saw them live, but I'd love to see them again. You know, I've been, I've been because you, I was doing this podcast, I've been listening to a couple of the songs, and um, I had, I had all those records and CDs. You know, I had that first EP um yeah we had that first ep definitely long since gone yeah 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 i don't have it anymore but um we i mean i would have gone to the record launch and stuff i remember going to some of the gigs that i you know I wasn't we weren't playing it too to support them so um you know we love the foes and they were good guys they were great guys i remember coxie had that whole thing about being a virgin do you remember that
0: yeah that's (laughs) right yeah (laughs) Pretty late in the piece until the mid two thousands, I think. Yeah. yeah. So that
1: was that was that got a lot of press, didn't it? It was very intriguing, yeah. Uh, is and there was that great <laughs> bold. you'd know that great documentary where they go to the snow and do that gig. Yeah, fifteen minutes to rock. Yeah. Oh man, that is the best. And he keeps asking. He's he's so much like a comedian. How many people are out there? How many, Oh, there's a few. There's quite a few. Oh yeah, had twenty or thirty. That is a great documentary. I'm sure people listening to this have seen it, or they should see it. Yes. Is it on YouTube? It's fantastic. Or it must it be- is, yes. Oh, it is great. Yes,
0: and we hope we hope to interview the director, Vanessa. She, um, I'd love to see an extended let
1: it be type
0: cut yes. eight hours or something, because there must be gold there, yeah.
1: <laughs> but there's a lot of similarities to comedians. I've done gigs in the snow, and it's just fucked. It's like, they can be the most punishing gigs, because, you know, it's free to get in. People don't really want to be there. They're just there trying to ski and then pick up. The young people want to pick up, you know. <laughs> and it's just, oh, it's awful. It's fascinating how
0: you comedians, you can read a room, you know, when it's going to go well. Or once you were describing how cricket clubs is a different type of audience to a footy yeah. club, it's more colli- Yeah, it's true.
1: This- it's true. Yeah, it's true. And, and you know, I do a lot of, um, you know, as Carl and Tommy from the Dum Dum will hang shit on me, corporate gigs. But, um, mm. you know, I mean, I just yeah, wish they had. Yeah, well, they're just, you know, they're just criticizing my work ethic. But um, blue <laughs> collar is different from white collar. You know, it's just a different, yeah. vibe. it's a different vibe. Like you can get away with more at blue collar cause you know, yeah, mate, fucking whatever, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and they all, all, a lot of them still smoke, which is interesting. White collar people don't smoke anymore. Wow. Yeah. You have a break at a, you have a break at a plumber's conference. Half of them will leave the room for a ciggy. You have a break at like a IT crowd conference. No one, no one leaves for a ciggy, you know? So oh, they are, it's, all, it's all in my book. You know, it's all in my book, as we say, uh, but I haven't got a book. Oh, yeah. I, I don't have a com. I'm, I, I want to write a book about comedy, but I haven't yet. So, one day. In a draft stage, you've got some things written down? So I've no- written some stuff, yeah. And I look, Um, people always say, you know, oh, you should write a book about doing comedy because you've done it for so long. And and then you write a few chapters and you send it out to publishers, and they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if people are that interested in that kind You know, in bad gigs and you know stuff I don't know maybe just, I think people are you know yeah I, I mean I find it fascinating but I'm a comedian so you know um, I just read Jimmy Carr's book which is excellent so
0: All oh, right. I've heard him um, yeah, promoting that on various podcasts very interesting yeah,
1: yeah he, good book is it yeah but then again he's very famous so he's going to get a publishing deal <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's how it
0: goes well thanks very much for joining us on the podcast Dave no worries good luck can you tell us more about where we can hear you? The Debrief is a great podcast where you interview comedians, ex-gig. Yeah,
1: look. the Where's de- it coming back? Yeah, it's, look, it's it stopped. I did some over COVID just ringing comedians, but then my machine broke, basically, that I was doing it on. And I, the Debrief essentially was a podcast for going to a gig with a comedian, talking to them on the way. You do the gig, then you get back in the car, and we talk about the gig that just happened. And comedy in general. So it's a real comedy nerd podcast. And I've had a lot of great people on that you know we've mentioned the dum-dum guys but also you know like people like will anderson and denise scott judith lucy kitty you know and so if you look at the back catalogue there's some great one of the greatest ones is when we went to mick malloy's kids private school to do a benefit yeah it's hilarious <laughs> with sam pang and adam rosenbachs and at this school we were presented with a case of wine after the gig and sam pang's like where's this from the guy said it's from our vineyard. So we're doing a benefit for a school with a vineyard. So that is yeah. a that that is an absolute cracker. And the other one that people mention is Lawrence Mooney and Lemo. We're coming back from Rosebud Hotel, which is a bit of a drive. And Mooney is pissed, and uh, it's quite funny. But um, so there's a, there's that podcast. There's the Junkies with Kitty Flanagan, which is in recess at the moment because she's touring. But again, if you like if you like snack food, if you're a fan of chips and lollies, you will love this podcast because we're both. Uh, Junk snack food fiends, and and then there's the one with Glenn Robbins, called somehow related, where we get two topics and we've got to work out how they're related, and that's just good to um get an insight into the guy who played Cal Knight and Russell Coit life, because he has the best life <laughs> in the world.
0: <laughs> Do you remember the junkies, the Violet Crumble Crunchy debate? Do you remember what yes. you fell on that
1: side of the divide? What, what was it, Crunchy? Yeah. Um, you know the thing about Vi- which we found out, and an engineer sent us a letter. Um, Viola Crumble, Viola Crumble uses compound chocolate. Crunchies uses real milk chocolate, and so naturally, milk, cho- milk chocolate is a better chocolate. But the reason they use compound chocolate is that it keeps the honeycomb crisp, because there's more oil in, and it and encases the. Whereas a, whereas a milk chocolate, and this is. When you have a crunchy, they're often a little bit chewy and soft, and that's because it's milk chocolate. Um, so I look, I'm often I'm often influenced by Kitty because she's very strong in her opinions, and I just go along with her. You know, I just yeah, yeah, you're right. But I reckon I am actually more a violet crumble person than a crunchy person, and I can't remember where I stood on the actual podcast, but I would always buy a violet crumble. Before a crunchy, because I mean I didn't realise it was compound chocolate, and I'm not so anti compound chocolate as Kitty is. She's very anti it, but I'm like, I I, I eat these ones called Bumble, which you just get at Woolies, and they're like a New Zealand little uh, honey, like a violet crumble, but little bits, and they're fantastic, and they're compound chocolate, and they are great. So yeah, it's a big debate. It's big debates going on, <laughs> seriously. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dave. No worries, and. Um, Good luck with this. The end result is you like the Foes, yeah. You, you, you recommend the Foes to every music lover. Foes were great. The Foes are always good. You know, um, great, great songs and great guys and good pop rock stuff.
0: Well, hopefully, if you ever update Summer of '82 to follow. Captain Coco's further career. Yes. Maybe you'll chuck a few F- Fove's references in, yeah?
1: <laughs> well, initially, that's what they said at the publishing house. Oh, then you can do the summer of 88. But the book didn't do that well, so it never got fired up. But anyway, but it's still out there. I love time. the book. Yeah, it's summer of 82. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good read. It's out there. It's out there. A Brasher's Bag. I've got a Brasher's Bag, yeah. Yeah, I use that in Zoom gigs. So if, it, if I'm doing <laughs> a... Uh, Zoom gig, and they're all they're over 35. You just pull it out, and people, people lose their minds, but uh, um, me
0: too. But in my mind, it was always so expensive there. But I, bu- yeah. I bought my first ever DVD there 40 bucks a uh, Dr. No, yeah, <laughs> nice. Yeah, see, I'm older, so
1: we it used to be really important to go down there and get your records. But they only employ good looking people, crashes. It was never really, yeah, it was always attractive girls And gay blows I me, I don't think. Guys like me got a look. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>